Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back to another 30 with Murdy, and for the second time this season, I am pleased to welcome a Hall of Famer to the podcast. Wade Boggs is one of the greatest hitters of the last 50 years, winning batting titles with the Red Sox in the 1980s, winning a World Series ring with the Yankees in 1996, and then joining the 3000 Hit Club as he finished out his career with the then Devil Rays from his hometown of Tampa. Boggs and I spoke about his early career in baseball and then got into some good discussions about hitting that I think you'll enjoy. As a guy who's spent the last decade and a half coaching high school kids, Boggs certainly has the ability to teach and convey a message. It was an honor to get to ask him about certain philosophies from both his day and the present game in regards to the art and science of hitting. Boggs relates to us conversations with greats like Ted Williams and Don Mattingly, and it's a wonderful listen for any baseball fan to hear Wade Boggs break it down like he does here. And yes, we did talk a little bit about that horse ride in 1996. Due to a conflict on my end, I had to cancel an in-person meeting with uh, Boggs in Tampa in spring training, so we taped this conversation over the phone last week, oddly enough, when the Yankees were in Boston. And that's when Wade Boggs spent 30 with Murdy. Wade, the first thing I like to ask my guests is, what can you tell me about the first baseball game you ever went to? What do you remember? Actually, the first baseball game I ever went to was the one I played in, in uh, (laughs) Baltimore. I had never gone to to a big league game. I'd gone to a few games in spring training with the Reds here in Tampa, but uh, spring training is not actually like going to a big league ballpark. Um, so uh, the minute I walked out in Memorial Stadium in uh, in Baltimore, it was kind of uh, kind of surreal. It really was. Uh, uh, I didn't know what to expect. Um, and playing five and a half years in the minor leagues, you don't expect the big crowds. That, yeah. That was, yeah. Probably the biggest thing that that uh, uh, that shocks young players when they come up is is the size of the crowds. Uh, unless you play in in venues that, like Buffalo and AAA, where they draw over a million people a year. But uh, um, yeah, it was uh, uh, an eventful day. I, I faced Dennis Martinez and went over four, so yeah. it was an eventful day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny in. In scout speak, they always talk about, you know, wait till the player sees that third deck. You know, it's the way they talk about, you know, like what you just described. But is it that, um, is, is it that much of a, uh, of a shock to you when you walk out to the stadium and you see, just, just see how many more seats there are? Well, the, the big thing that you have to realize is, is that you see these stadiums on TV and watching game of the week on Saturday or something of that nature in Detroit and Boston and New York and and that was that was the thing that that I was shocked when I walked into Yankee Stadium for my first at bat and and I had this moment of grandeur that uh, wow I'm standing in the same place Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle and and all of these greats that have ever played in, in Yankee Stadium uh, have stood and I had that same moment of grandeur when I when I had my first at bat in Fenway with the uh, Oh my gosh, my, you know my, 
my hero, Ted Williams, uh, stood right here in this in this dirt. So I, I think that 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 nostalgic part of of, of uh, uh, the side of me that that carried me through these ballparks um, sort of uh, sort of helped. Um, but uh, it is overwhelming. Ted Williams told me uh, um, uh, my last year in Triple A. He says, uh, "You make it to the big leagues, it's easier to hit there." And uh, <laughs> I looked at him, kind of, kind of funny. And he said, uh, "The lights are better, the food's better, and it travels better." <laughs> and he was he was right. You were a seventh round pick in 1976, and I'm kind of curious. People I've talked to about. Uh, who were drafted into the game at, around that time? Uh, tell me about the experience of it. How'd you find out? Because you know, today the draft is on TV, and you know you're you're getting text messages or whatever you're getting. What was the draft experience like? Did, uh, I, Mike Sosha told me he didn't even know he got drafted. What was your experience like? Well, actually, mine came by Pony Express. Was, uh, <laughs> what the, but uh, I, I, w- I was highly scouted by the Mets in uh, my junior and senior year, and and there was rumor through the grapevine that I was going to go in the first or second round with the Mets. And and there were uh, myself and Sammy Spence, who wound up going to uh, Cleveland, I believe. Uh, he, he wound up going in the third round, I think. But we went down to the, uh, the newspaper here in Tampa, the Tampa Tribune, and it came across on the teletype. <laughs> and they were taking pictures of Sammy Spence and myself. And and I got to about the fifth round, and I had an American Legion game that day. And so I had to come home, get dressed, and go to the American Legion game. And, and at the time, my my girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife of 40 years, Debbie, <laughs> she, uh, um, uh, her brother-in-law worked at the Tribune. So he had uh, got in touch with her and said that I went in seventh round Boston. So she came flying to... Al Lopez Field and and uh, said that I went in the seventh round with Boston and about 30 minutes later my dad had gotten off work and he was at the game and and he I talked to him on the side and he said uh, he said this couldn't have worked out any better because Fenway Park was was built for you and uh, so it was a extremely exciting day it was uh, uh, the 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 sense of not knowing and uh, the sense of what the future may hold. And a couple days, a couple days later, George Digby, uh, the scout that signed me for the Red Sox, uh, came to the house, uh, offered me a contract, and uh, which it wasn't very much money, but it was an opportunity to uh, play professional baseball. And, and uh, two days later, I'm spending my birthday in Elmira, New York. So yeah. it was... Uh, it was it was a whirlwind. I had never been away from the been away from home, and and uh, it was uh, one of those experiences that uh, wow, it's time to grow up. Uh, by the numbers, your time at Elmira, New York, tells me that that's the only time in the world you struggled trying to hit a baseball. You hit two sixty three. What do you remember about that first experience as an eighteen year old? Uh, what a slider looks like. That was <laughs> the that was the big thing. I had never seen a slider in high school. And I'm facing college pitchers, and and at the time I, I I could have probably used another year in high school. I was 17 when I graduated, and and so basically I looked at that as is my senior year in high school, and so it was 
just learning how to hit a slider, basically. And once uh, the next year in, in uh, Winston-Salem in 77, I hit 332. So um, it, was a, it was a short transition yeah. between uh, Elmira and Winston-Salem. Yeah, uh, and, and it, it continued on throughout your time in the minor leagues. You mentioned how much time you spent there. Uh, you hit 318 over two full seasons of AA, 322 over two full seasons of AAA. Uh, it seems to me, and I think you've talked about this before, the hardest part for you wasn't necessarily convincing yourself you could hit in the big leagues. It was convincing the Red Sox you could hit in the big leagues. Well, I, I think that, that back in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, Third base was a position that uh, they wanted a guy that hit 250 and 25 and 30 home runs, yeah. and really wasn't ready for a guy that would hit 350, 360. Eventually, where I was going, um, with with not a lot of power, it was a power position. Most of your most of your corner positions were power. Most of your corner outfield positions were power, and and they really didn't need a single double hitter playing third base, and and. Then uh, in 82, when Carney Lansford broke his ankle, and I started hitting, and, and the snowball kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then eventually they traded Carney after the 82 season, and I got a chance to play. So I, I sort of rewrote that, that, uh, that byline of, wow, you know, if you had a third baseman that gets on 300 times, and scores over 100 runs, uh, he's, he's kind of valuable to your team. Yeah. So, did, um, you know, it's funny what I hear now when you talk to people about just the need for power, the little catchphrase is hit the ball in the air. I heard that so many times over the winter from, from guys around the game. Hit the ball in the air is, the, is just what they're clinging to now. Was it, was it uh, specified to you in that particular way when people tried to get you to hit for more power? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, I mean, I basically came out and said, if you don't hit home runs, you're never playing the big leagues. Wow. So I said, okay. And then wound up hitting 335 my last year in AAA with seven home runs and, and, uh, breaking, I think, 12 records for left handed hitters in AAA. But, but, uh, you know, I, I put up a phenomenal season and didn't get a call-up. And the Red Sox wound up calling, like, 10 or 11 guys to the big leagues off of, off of Pawtucket that year. Wow. And I, I went home and called my agent and said, we need to figure this out. Yeah. And I went to uh, Puerto Rico. So two weeks later, I was in Puerto Rico. Wow. What did you do there? Uh, hit 379 and, and finally got uh, added to the 40-man roster. So uh, that was that was a nice Christmas present in 1981 that I got added to the 40-man roster and and uh, invited to spring training. So uh, then had to go to spring training, proven uh, actually uh, proving to the uh, Red Sox that not only could I hit, but I could play defense. And mm. I would go in and the later innings uh, for, for Carney, and I was just hoping uh, for balls hit to my left or right so I could dive <laughs> and make plays and and really had a good defensive spring training, and that's basically what Ralph Houck told me. My manager at the time said, uh, 
uh, we all knew you could hit, but no one knew that you could field like this. And he said, that's why you made the club. And so I, you know, I was the 25th guy in utility and, and I was just, just tickled pink to be there. Uh, you just jogged my memory, and I had forgotten this. You know, when you said Ralph Houck was your first manager. I mean, this is a guy that managed yeah, sixty-one yeah, Yankees, two years. Yeah, and Ralph Houck, Maris yeah. and Mantle, and all these guys. What uh, What do you recall about about playing for him? Uh, all my managers in the minor league had been young. That was the big thing, <laughs> and, and he was more of a father figure than than a manager. And really, I didn't know too much about. Ralph until later on mm -hmm. when I started going back and looking up uh, his resume on, on managing the Yankees, uh, you know, with Mantle and, and all of those guys. So, um, I mean, just the, just the, the sheer knowledge that, that Ralph had um, was, uh, you know, a, a great opportunity for me in my first year. Uh, going back to how everybody tried to get you to hit for more power, I told you you wouldn't make it if you didn't hit home runs. You and Ichiro seem to fall under the same criticism and that people talked for years and years about what you could do in batting practice and why that wasn't the same in a game, why you didn't hit for more power. Ichiro seems to fall into that same criticism. Between the two of you, you got 6,000 big league hits. Did you ever take offense to that? Absolutely, and I can defend it. Um... <laughs> If, if they threw 55 miles an hour or, say, 50 miles an hour, like they do in batting practice, uh, in the game with no sliders, no fork balls, no change-ups, uh, no cutters, um, yeah, I'd hit 40 home runs a year. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But since I waited so long to see the spin on the ball, I never got to the front part of the zone to hit home runs, which creates elevation. And that's what they say about nowadays, hit the ball in the air. You've got to get to the front part of your zone. I, I, I find these hitters so vulnerable, not only with the shifts, but trying to hit the ball in the air that you can trick them. You can trick these guys like there's no tomorrow because they've got to hit the ball in front of the zone in order to create elevation. I would hit the ball so deep, and that's what causes line drives and hard ground balls through the infield. And, and I would wait to see the dot on the slider and wait to see the fork ball tumble and everything. I know they're not going to throw a fork ball in batting practice. I know it's going to be the same speed at the same spot. And basically, every time, all I have to do is just put a good swing on it. And sure, I've got the power. Um, if I played 11 years in Wrigley Field, I would have probably hit 300 home runs. Hmm. I had the green monster that knocked down a lot of the doubles that uh, – would have been home runs at other ballparks that I hit to left center. And so, you know, when they say, well, he didn't hit for a lot of power, what's saying that 30 feet in the air that hits off the top of the wall is not a home run in a majority of the other parks in left center? So, you know, it, it's that two-edged sword to where I have to defend myself with the amount of power that I had. I mean, I, I had the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde swing. I mean, I could hit line drives all over the ballpark, and then turn on the switch in batting practice and get extended. That's why I, li I like to get extension and hit home runs in batting practice because I knew I was staying through the baseball. And I would carry that through the game to where I couldn't get fooled with change-ups and fork balls because I would stay through and create a little bit longer swing at the end of my swing rather than, uh, than cutting it off.
I knew if I wasn't hitting home runs in batting practice, my swing was getting cut off. So, so I mean, do you really think then that you would have been a different kind of hitter had you played in a different organization at the beginning of your career? I would have hit more home runs, absolutely. Yeah, wow, interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Very interesting. Um, you mentioned the shifting, and that's something that I know was done a little bit here and there uh, before, but be, has become a lot more prevalent the last couple of years. And a lot of people take to calling it defensive positioning now more than shifting. Uh, it's gotten very sophisticated, and it's designed to really just turn more ground balls into outs and take away from the guys who just hit the ball on the ground. Um is do you think that would have bothered? I mean, you were line drive guy, but do you think shifting would have changed anything about you, or would have bothered you more? In the minor leagues, I had uh, one guy on the right side of the field. I was a first baseman. Hmm. I had everybody on the left side of the field because I knew that I, I, I hit one ball to the right of second base my uh, my uh, second year in Double uh, A, and that was only a ground ball. Huh. I had I had never hit a ball to the right side of second base, so I had. Three outfielders from center, left center, right uh, to left, uh, and three infielders on that side, and still wound up hitting. And seventy nine, I think I hit uh, three. Uh, I think it was three eighteen or something. In, so, in you, so you were the you were the anti shift. You were you were the lefty hitter that they that they played the other way, which doesn't happen very often. Right, right, yeah, because they couldn't pull the ball. And then the older I got, I could, I could, I could move the ball to the right side. Okay. Whereas I didn't. That normally, if, if the pitch was on the inner inner third, I would just inside out it to left mm-hmm. and not even pull it. But then when they start pounding you in, you gotta you gotta learn how to get to that ball and and pull it with a little bit of authority. That's that's why when I left Fenway Park and went to Yankee Stadium, I had to change my swing. Mm-hmm. And it took a whole offseason to change my swing to play it low to left and high to right. And it's the complete opposite of Fenway Park. You play it high to left and low to right. You mentioned uh, coming to the Yankees, and you became teammates with Don Mattingly. And I remember you talking about one of the, you know, as you guys talked hitting and philosophies, uh, you came down to what the big difference was between the two of you and it came down to a certain pitch and a certain count was it was the 2-0 pitch is, is that how I, am i recalling that right the 2-0 yeah 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 Tell- donnie donnie had asked how do you walk 100 times in a year and i said simple take 2-0 he goes you're kidding i said no and i, I believe it was 90 94 when he asked me that question he, he was averaging probably 33 walks or something in that neighborhood and 95, his walks, he went to 67 or almost 70. Yeah. And it wasn't because they were pitching around him, because he took 2-0. and Yeah. And it, it, uh, it was basically the philosophy that, that Rick Down uh, instilled into everybody, that we needed to get to 90 pitches in five innings for the starting pitcher. Yeah. And in order to do that, sometimes you have to take 2-0, and and sometimes you have to take 3-1. and just to increase pitch counts. And once you get to the pitcher in 90, uh, 90 pitches in five innings and you get into the bullpen and start wearing bullpens out in a four-game series, you're going you're gonna to win a majority of these games. And that was the basic scientific 
data that we had uh, on the success on how we won games. Very interesting. You uh, you were part of a team in '94 that uh, was was you know, cut out of the race by the by the strike and uh, and all the labor strike. Yeah, thanks to yeah, thanks to Bud Seeley. <laughs> <laughs> how how good were the '94 Yankees? That's the best Yankee team I ever played on. We'd have, we'd have won it hands down that year, wow. no question. What what was so good about that team? Uh, let's see, pitching, hitting, and defense. <laughs> Everything, huh? Three things that you yeah. need to win a World Series, and we had all three. How uh, how much regret do you have that that? You know, not just everything that happened with the season, but at that particular point in time, you had not won a World Series yet, and that looked to be such a great chance. Oh, there was there was animosity, anger, you know, all the above when they pulled the plug on the season. Um, I mean, we were, you know, you you took you took our toy away from us, and we had to go home. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that that. Uh, so you, you know, we need to find a way to resolve this so we can get back to to uh, taking care of business here. And boom, they said no. Season's done. World Series is done. Uh, and then we didn't know really what the future was was going to hold because then they started inviting scabs to spring training in '95, and and luckily we uh, we resolved this thing halfway through spring training and had two weeks of spring training in 95 and, and then got back to, uh, to business. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those times that, uh, holy cow, you know, must be really serious that they're going to cancel the season and the world series. So, yeah, they, they haven't been that, that stupid about it since. So thank goodness yeah. for, for all of yeah. us. Sort of uh, wised up. 96 ended up being the year that you got that ring and, how how often do people bring up the horse to you? I mean, I, I've asked you about it before, and we've talked about it on the air different times. But you know, in your everyday life, do people come up to you and, and say, "Hey, remember that time you were on the horse?" Every day, every day. <laughs> I mean, if, if if somebody, I mean, that's the, probably the two things is is uh, the horse and Cheers being on Cheers. That was uh, yeah. one of the, one of the generational gaps that that I had back in the eighties, and then naturally in the 90s is the horse but uh yeah it was one of those things that that wasn't pre-planned and and really don't till this day i've never gone back and looked at the video to see how i got up on the horse and next thing i know i'm, I'm in center field on the back of a police horse and riding around yankee stadium and and just just that that feeling of euphoria was was uh was tremendous when I, I found the part about you know just uh, talking about hitting very interesting with you, and that, this is a conversation that could go on for hours, I think, um, especially if I was somebody who knew what was actually happening with hitting. I'm just asking, a guy asking you questions about it. But I look at your prime and your peak with the Red Sox from 85 to 88. You hit a combined 364 over those four full seasons. Was was hitting really as easy as it looked, or was it just a process that you embraced? Was it easy? Was it hard? How did you look at it? I, I, I think it was more of a gift than anything, but uh, through hard work, that gift needs to come out. And having Walt Reniak as, as my hitting instructor, um, he would not let me take a bad swing. And 
I never gave away at bats. So with with that in mind, I mean, Walt and I would converse throughout the game. Um, next day, uh, skull sessions about plan of attack, uh, batting practice, and maintaining the same swing and the same consistency throughout the whole season is probably the reason that that I hit for such a high average and 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 in that time. I, I love that philosophy about you know not giving away at bats and, and you see it play out occasionally. Listen, there are a lot of lopsided games during the course of a season and if someone's losing eight to one in the eighth or ninth inning, you come up, that's still an at bat for you. It's it's something that you're taking as seriously as the first inning or game fifty or game hundred or whatever it is. That's the process of not giving away in a bat and continuing to hone your craft, right? Absolutely, yeah. I, as a high school coach, I, I preach the same philosophy. When uh, we're more up ten to one or or what have you, and you come to the plate, don't give away that at bat. Absolutely not. You know, don't don't sit there and go through the motions and swing at a bad pitch. And it's uh, you know that 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 philosophy is not fashionable to walk. And actually, it it, it kind of is because you 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 move the lineup along and and you wear the pitcher down and and you you sit there and say, okay, I've got enough trust in the guy hitting behind me to uh, to to uh, pick up pick up the slack here when uh, when it's second and third and they're trying to pitch around me that I'm going to expand the the zone trying to do something and I know they're trying to pitch around me and I get myself out. So if you're going to walk me, then you got the bases loaded with the next guy coming up. And uh, you're coaching high school ball in Tampa? Yeah, yeah, it's my 17th year at Warden. How's, uh, how how much do you enjoy that? Oh, it's, it's tremendous. We, uh, um, we have a great time. We're, uh, getting ready for districts next week and, and, uh, we've got, uh, uh, a really good team, really solid team, and uh, hopefully we can we can uh, get on that uh, bus with the uh, the red velvet seats. <laughs> is there is, other than the school bus? <laughs> is there ever a level of frustration with you? Uh, you know, people talk about the um, the great players not being able to coach at the at the highest levels because they they seem to or just want to expect others to 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 be as good as they were. Um, what's the difference like for you at the high school level? Do you constantly have to remind yourself of things? Do you just embrace that that age group? How, how do you go about that? No, well, they're sponges, and and they're they're willing to absorb things and, and learn. And and I teach the game the right way, and that's hustle, and uh, and play the game the right way. But uh, I was the hitting coach for Tampa Bay in two thousand uh, two thousand one. Right. I mean, so. You could lead the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. <laughs> and it's it's not that the great players can't be good coaches. It's that I think the great players demand a little bit more out of their players. That I mean, back back in the day, I would I would uh, say we got the field from two to three for extra hitting, and one guy would show up. <laughs> so I mean, it, it's it's not a point of great players can't be good coaches it's that I, I think that great players know what the sacrifice was in order to get to that position and players nowadays 
sometimes just want to sit on cruise control and go through the go through the motions. And you know, you ask a guy, "Hey, we got the field tomorrow from two to three, and he says, "You know, I'm really comfortable with my swing. I don't I don't think I need any extra BP." And I said, "You're comfortable with two forty five? And you know, they look at you like, well, I'm going to call my agent. <laughs> and, you know, then you get called into the principal's office for, you know, yelling at a kid. And, and I think Tino went through that same thing down yeah, in Miami. Exactly right. You know, yeah. he, he expected uh, a little bit more out of his players. And once it gets to the point to where, I mean, Walt Rayak's in my face every other day. Yeah. And it's, it's, I, I think it's motivation, if nothing else, and and you know you, you can't have you can't have thin skin. I mean, you you got to sit there and and toughen up a little bit and and uh, go about your business. Are there still routines and or superstitions that follow you through your your routine nowadays, Wade? No, thank God. No, <laughs> I, that over compulsive disorder that I had uh, or whatever it's called um, you know I might have a lucky fishing hat or something like that but uh, other than than the 80 something things that I had to do when I played uh, thank goodness they're gone and uh, you know it's just uh, I, I just use them for just focusing in, in on, on the task at hand and, and that's filtering out all the, the other uh, distractions that, that that come with with uh, being around the ballpark, and you know I like to get to the ballpark early. Uh, I like my quiet time, and I never want to be late. And you know I, I it was uh, that's why I, I sort of regimented all of these things throughout the course of the day that I knew at a certain time I was going to be doing certain things. And I, and I think bring, being uh, brought up in a, a military atmosphere, uh, when my, my father was in the military, that uh, you had dinner at the same time every day, and you woke up at the same time every day, you went to school, you got home at the same time every day, you left for baseball practice the same time every day. So these patterns of repetition just sort of fall into place once you can control uh, the time-wise. You know what time the game's going to start. That that was the probably the biggest disruption that I had when we went to the playoffs in the World Series mm. because every time was different, right. and so you get thrown off on your on your on your superstition clock, and, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, it's it's okay. We're not going to start for fifteen more minutes, and and you're sitting there going, "Oh my gosh, I was supposed to run ten minutes ago." Right. And so, yeah, thank good, thank goodness all of those days are gone. <laughs> oh, Wade, listen, this is a pleasure for me. Uh, I could go on and on with yeah. you for a really long time, but hopefully we get a chance to do it again sometime, and thanks for taking a good few minutes for me. All right, Sweeney, thank you. My thanks again to Wade Boggs, who is one of those rare guys who knows how to talk hitting to people like me who have 3,000 fewer hits than he does. It really was a pleasure to hear his stories and his philosophies and the ideas behind it all. Next week, a little different approach here on the podcast. As Mother's Day approaches and Yankee fans look forward to May 14th as the day Derek Jeter's number two is officially retired, that is also a day that marks the 50th anniversary of a great moment in Yankee history, Mickey Mantle's 500th home run. 
Next week on this podcast, I speak to several people who were there that day at Old Yankee Stadium in uniform and recount the story of the mixed milestone home run. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.